Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like about some warm stuff that they like. No guilty pleasures, just stuff that's really good that always works. A book, a TV programme, a film, a record that they go back to again and again that never lets them down and always gives them comfort, makes them feel safe and warm. This time I'm talking to the author and journalist Daisy Buchanan. Daisy hosts the Your Booked podcast has written non-fiction like How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood, as well as novels like Careering and Insatiable. And Daisy has chosen, for her comfort blanket, Bridget Jones' Diary by Helen Fielding. chosen to do the original book of Bridget Jones' Diary, which I think is going to be interesting because not only is it a book that people know, it's now quite a long time since it came out and maybe the world and we have changed. Um, Is this a book that you go back to and read again and again? It is very much a comfort book. And actually, although I have various copies of it about my person, I do also like to have it on Kindle on my phone because when... (laughs) It is what I reach for. If I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and I'm in a panic and nothing can calm me, Bridget Jones will do it because I know it so well. I can just drop off holding it. I think I could probably recite it with, I'd need a lot of prompting. (laughs) I suppose it's a book that you can drop into at any point because it's formatted like a diary. Yes. (laughs) And I do, if I am you know, reaching for it. I, sometimes I start from the beginning, but sometimes I think, oh, I mean, now we know we're recording in April. So I might go and say, what was, what was Bridget doing in April? <laughs> what was she doing on my birthday? Obviously, there isn't an entry for every day. But I think it's because it's so peopled. And I was revisiting it and thinking about, because I mean, I'm fascinated by it. And I'm also a really staunch defender of it because lots of people say, oh, no, it's a woman moaning about her weight and moaning about how she can't get a man. And it's kind of, you know, early sad girl lit. And actually... Right. 
It's so busy as a book. It's really densely populated. And the very beginning is not Bridget complaining about being eternally single, but more her complaining about the awful people that her friends and family are trying to set her up with. I I love the pace of her life that she is in London and I think in her 30s. And it's quite depressing because I first read this when I was about 13 and I thought, oh my goodness, she's, she's so grown up. And when that was it, I thought, this is how I want to live. I didn't think oh, poor tragic lady in her 30s, not married with kids. I thought, she gets drunk and goes to parties and lives on her own in a little flat. That's where I want to be in my 30s. I don't want to be Magda, married with kids. That sounds awful. The prize she's trying to get doesn't appear to be too great. The life she's trying to escape from is actually quite exciting and vivid and real and very lived. And she's very alive. And she's alive from the first moment you meet her and the way she talks and the way she engages with stuff. She's at that lovely stage of saying, I want to move on to the next stage of my life. And you want to go, oh, can you just hold on to the one you've got? Because I'm only reading about this and enjoying it because it's actually great. And you want to sort of say to her, stop for a minute and grab this. And maybe that's what it is as a book. It's a record. It's a diary. She's written it down. And why else do you write a diary down apart from to remember how you felt at a certain time and then look back on later? So it feels like she's making a record of, of what her... Uh, late 20s, early 30s felt like so that she can look back on it later on and, and, and see what she did have. One of the things I like most about her is that she's eternally optimistic. She's basically on a doomed quest for self-improvement. And it does do two things in that, on the one hand, yes, there's that sense of possibility that, I mean, I think that Helen Fielding could write a brilliant book about, you know, Bridget married with kids and in some of the sequels, sorry about the spoiler, but there's an element (laughs) of this, that, but also, you know, she's poised, she's on the brink of something. There's that feeling and, you know, it's as a novelist, it's what I write too. I want those women who are seeking change and looking around and wanting more and wanting total transformation. Maybe should I read a couple of her New Year's resolutions and then you'll get an idea of what she wants. She says, I will stop smoking, drink no more than 14 alcohol units a week, go to the gym three times a week, not merely to buy a sandwich, form functional relationship with responsible adults and learn to program the VCR. I will not sulk about having no boyfriend, but develop inner poise and authority and sense of self as a woman of substance, complete without boyfriend, as best way to obtain boyfriend. It's a magic book because when you're introduced to like her best friends, Jude and Shazza, you never really are introduced. There's that intimacy where you know them straight away. They leap off the page as, you know, Bridget's her mother and her extended yeah. family. The writing's so deft and so quick and so funny. It's quick sketches, isn't it? It really is. Lively caricatures. You're like, you know all these people. There's a funny thing with those those thumbnail sketches. We're doing diary. Diary as a format, I think, is massively underappreciated. I remember talking to uh, an editor who'd worked with Sue Townsend for ages, and I said, why don't you just publish diaries all the time? Because Adrian Mole works and Bridget Jones works, and they're great and people love them. There's something so accessible about reading someone's diary, the intimacy of it. It's where novels came from, epistolary novels. It's got a great tradition, and it works really well for comedy, because what you're getting is someone is sort of not writing for an audience, even though the author actually is. They're writing for themselves, so they already know all their friends. So there's not a complicated, lengthy description of what someone looks like. It means you're writing in this very, very quick shorthand. I mean, Bridget Jones, one of the cliches about it is it's got that abbreviated 
complicated shorthand, VG. Mm. It's written very fast. So you as a reader are filling in gaps, which is enormously flattering. You love to do that. So she does these thumbnail sketches, doesn't spend ages on description. You fill in and guess what people are like by their dialogue and by uh, what she chooses to write down. She doesn't give you the whole picture. She gives you tiny glimpses of it. And it is like eavesdropping on someone or reading someone's diary. It does feel intimate. And it doesn't feel like you're being given all the information. There's not much info dumping, which means it's really fast. I do think that diaries are deceptively simple. And and definitely, I think what happened with Bridget Jones is, and because it was wildly, wildly popular, people think, oh, well, it's easy. And I don't think it is easy to craft that story to be so clever in terms of giving you minimal detail, but giving you enough detail and telling a story. And I think with a diary, it feels blissfully unstructured and you're like oh we don't need a a plot per se it's just a year in someone's life and actually the plot is there it is absolutely there you just don't realize that you're being seduced into following it because you're having so much fun with the the gag rate this is a a, a bugbear of mine about comic novels that comic novels are apparently very very hard to sell very very hard to publish people don't like them apparently that's what publishers tell you and yet when you ask people for their top 10 books So many of them are comic novels. Comic novels are enormously loved and they are loved because they are fast, pacey and accessible. So I think the comic novel as a form is enormously comforting because it's got that energy. It's not got the ponderousness of a great novel. It's very, very light. And I think that's why people dismiss it, because it looks easy. To make something this light and frothy and fast and instantly accessible, that's really clever. It's hard to do. Well, I was, when I wrote Richard Jones, a journalist, I'd written one novel which was set in Africa in a refugee camp. In serious novel? Yeah. Well, it was a satire. It was half funny, half serious. As a reader, I felt conflicted about the love story. And to be honest, I feel (laughs) that I love a rom-com, but with all romantic comedies, I'm not always wildly bothered about the rom. Like, it's fine. I'm much more interested in the... The com. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the journey there is better, isn't it? The friends and the story and what's happening. But obviously, we know it's between, you know, famously Mark Darcy and Daniel Cleaver. And I think we all know how that one goes. But even though the signposting is quite clear, I thought, I know what's going to happen, but I don't know if that's what I want or not. And it's sort of, I do think that Daniel Cleaver is one of the best written men in contemporary fiction. I was thinking that in publishing still, I think it is an industry that employs a lot of women, lots of brilliant, brilliant women who are doing fabulous things. And then one guy at the top. Right. (laughs) It skewers that and it skewers the way they talk and that power dynamic. Where she sits in that firm is really interesting. I mean, this is something we should talk about. The difference between Bridget Jones as a perceived archetype and a character via Renée Zellweger and the film and things, and the Bridget Jones who's in this book, who I think are two different people. She's not as much of a hot mess. If you were going to write a Bridget Jones-esque book or make a Bridget Jones-esque film, you'd start with a slightly chubby girl who's really chaotic and hasn't got her life in order. And I was really surprised rereading this, picking it up for the first time in ages and go, oh, she's nothing like that. She's very, very assertive. She knows what she wants. The reason she's doing this diary, the reason she's writing it down is she is declaring her goals. She knows herself. Some of this once about P.G. Woodhouse is that Bertie Wooster isn't an idiot because he wrote those books. And he goes, <laughs> That's yes, so true. Yeah, you're right. He's yeah. played it. He's a fool on the television, but he wrote those brilliant books. They're really witty. Bridget wrote this book. She's really funny. If we as women can't laugh at our weaknesses, then we haven't got very far as feminists. I mean, Book Bridget is an elegant thinker. She's really switched on. And one of the things I really love is how oddly zeitgeisty that book is. And now it's, I hate 
saying this, I'm not sure about this, but it is almost a period piece because it was published 25, 30 years ago. And she isn't afraid to talk about the events of the 90s, responding to the news. And she feels like it's really important to be sort of clued up on current affairs and social things and cultural things. It should date it, but it doesn't. But again, that's, we are overwhelmed with content to consume and things to listen to and watch and read and we feel as though we ought to be on top of it all and know about the big things and the small things to be sort of considered serious and yet fun people and I think Bridget (laughs) wants that too Even though it was a sensational success because it skewered a type and a voice and everyone went I am Bridget or people in the same ways they went uh, when Sex and the City came out I'm a Carrie I'm a a Miranda it's one of those things that skewers a type but not a type that's been around for ages a, a type that's going to be come away people think about themselves and this feeling the feeling of hysterically trying to keep up feeling slightly overwhelmed by the world she's constantly feeling like she's bright and clever and successful but things are slipping away from her that feeling of being lost in a race that's overtaking you is basically how life feels now and maybe that's not how life felt in 1990 or 1985 it's definitely how life feels now and she feels like she's a voice for that kind of feeling that is definitely how a lot of people still feel and this invents the modern rom-com in 1995 and we're still working within this framework using this voice using this attitude and this feeling of running to keep up I know that uh, Bridget Jane started life as a column in The Independent. And my understanding is gleaned from various interviews. I don't I think this is true. <laughs> Helen Fielding was asked to write a column. She didn't really want to do it as herself and thought, I'm going to do it in character and someone who is funny and lost and a little bit vulnerable because that's just more interesting than yeah. the person writing about their calm and perfect life. But also, I believe it was... I suppose in the maybe in the very early 90s at a time when the Sunday supplements really got going and that's when newspapers got enormous and every week you get this sort of huge pile of glossy things. How will you be spending your millennium? Tomorrow, the Mail on Sunday brings you the ultimate guide to the millennium, packed with everything you need to know. And I, I feel this and I only noticed this when I was really old. Those supplements that fell out of my newspaper at the weekend were representing as normal a lifestyle that belonged to a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of people. Probably the kind of people who maybe worked in those newspapers or the bosses of those newspapers. There was a real sort of grand designings of our culture that said this is normal to spend this much money on stuff. And she is definitely, you're right, from a period where those glossy magazines were going mad and the magazines weren't for an elite. They had suddenly gone into every home. Suddenly you were you were encouraged to feel you were a failure if you weren't living that lifestyle, when it was a lifestyle that was almost unachievable for most people. And she says it. I know, and it's before a date, I know from Cosmopolitan and all the pressure, that my body and myself will never be up to the standard required. That she's constantly, again, that feeling of running to keep up. And running to keep up with the standard that you're right was suddenly presented to you constantly as normal and was totally unachievable. Not Mr. Right. Just Mr. Right now. M, a 44-page glossy magazine, free tomorrow and every Tuesday with the mirror. <laughs> I just started, when this goes out, they might have just finished, I don't know, showing um, whatever happened to the Lightly Lads on BBC4. Yeah. Bob's talking about his life and he's got this nice new house built and Bob's been on lovely luxury holidays to all the places yeah. that Terry's been posted out to. Mind you, give me a chance to see the world. Places the ordinary bloke would never get a chance to go to. Like where? Well, Malta for one. Now, there's a place I could tell you some things about Malta. That's fantastic. I was there last year, two weeks. I quite liked it. Where else have you been? I was thinking, gosh, yeah, that era post-war where people like Bob could 
have a bit of money and be comfortable. And it was like, in terms of luxury lifestyle, the earth was flat. It was all achievable. You yeah. could go out and get it and it was for you if you wanted it. And, and then 20, 30 odd years later, Helen Fielding times, it's like, oh no, this magazine's going to fall out of your Sunday paper and come into your home and tell you to buy a rug for nine grand. And yeah. it's not like you're going out to buy L decoration. You're not pulling this into your home. It's all kind of becoming normalised. Yes. And that anxiety of help, 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 I can't catch up. Throwing the most spectacular party of your own. One day, the diary begins like absolutely furious. There's a piece in the telegraph that said, whatever happened to the dining room? And then another one in the independent saying, suddenly there are more dining rooms everywhere. <laughs> I still aspire to own Agnès Bay jeans because Bridget does <laughs> and she's very anxious about fitting into yeah. those. I will be dead in the cold, cold ground before I go into country casuals because that's Bridget's <laughs> biggest fear. And I honestly think that reading it as a teenager and plenty of people say, oh, how could you? What an awful thing for body dysmorphia, for eating disorders, for poor teenage girls obsessed with their weight. And hearing a grown woman saying, I will never be up to standard. I'm yeah. not going to be this glossy person. I honestly think that really helped me through those difficult years when I was reading Cosmo yeah. and Elle. And it, I had this little bit of Bridget that I carried with me that's like, I know this is entertaining nonsense and I kind of want it and I'm not fully immune and I love the glamour and I'm spellbound by it and I yearn for this life, but also it's not real. I have gone behind the curtain yeah. at Disney World. It's sort of about the way that women feel that they have to be perfect in so many areas and they sort of feel that they've got to whiz from the gym to the board meeting to the elaborate supper that they've cooked for 12 people. And all that happens is that when the guests arrive, they find themselves still in their underwear with wet hair and one foot in a pan of mashed potato. As a boy, and as someone who's in my 20s when I read it, I hadn't noticed the running joke with the weight. Mm. And the weight is relentlessly logged every day, and it stays the same. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up. Mm. At the end, nothing's happened. The story that's in those Sunday supplements is if you follow the Sunday supplements rules, your weight will go down. You will master it. You'll be in control of this. And there's a beautiful sense in this that goes... You're just as heavy as you are. Unless you make some mm. radical intervention that might be really bad for your mental or physical mm. health, you will be the shape you are. You can look after yourself and be healthy. Don't smoke so much. Don't drink so mm. much. But there's a sense all the way through that she is in a state of complete stasis. And at the end of it, when she tots up her score, mm. and it's a beautiful way of writing a book, that at the end of it, there's been the scores all the way through. And at the end, the last chapter is the score. The only one that's changed is Nice Boyfriends won. And that's what she's won. She won a single point. That's the love story, isn't it? That she doesn't just want any old man. She can have this. All she wants is a nice boyfriend. Why don't you want that for her? But, I mean, another thing as well is she, she eats and the food, it's a little obsessive to log it, but it's not like today I ate nothing and yeah. I weigh this. She is, you know, ploughing through the, you know, milk tray and cold yeah. potatoes and which again, I found, a you know, when you sort of read about, you know, what supermodels are doing or not doing. And when you think about, you know, Gwyneth and her bone broth, and I just yeah. want to read about this woman eating cold potatoes. I remember this being, this is a peak supermodel. 
This is absolutely where the pressure was that there were suddenly, there weren't just models in the Sunday supplements. There were these supermodels, there were massive celebrities. This is Naomi and Kate and all that sort of stuff, sort of that early 90s into the lad culture. And they're fetishized. And the idea was that they were all sort of, especially around this time, they were just lads and they're all drinking pints and pissing about. And you went, that can't possibly have been true. Human beings don't do that. And the great joy of Bridget Jones is that she says, if you eat and drink and have any kind of up and down mental state and any normal life, you'll keep putting weight on. And then you'll keep losing it and then you'll put it back on again. And don't worry, because she at the end ends up with her goal, which is the nice boyfriend. And the rest of it was just faff. Well, that's a fantastic scene. And I believe, again, I'm not 100% sure this is canon, um, (laughs) that when they came to make the film, this was vetoed from the film because they were told, no, Americans will understand this. It will baffle and confuse them. (laughs) Famous scene in the book where she finally gets down to her goal weight. And she goes to this party, house party, and everyone is pissed. Everyone's having a blast. <laughs> and she's primly sipping a herbal tea, yeah. not really wanting to and go thinking, oh, these people are really annoying and awful and pissed. Everyone's sort of like, are you all right? You look really ill. You don't look well. <laughs> and she's like, I'm great. I'm at my goal weight. I think it's her, her friend Tom says, Tom looked down, shocked at my admittedly deflated cleavage and said, I think maybe you lost it a bit quickly from your face (laughs) and they were like no american will understand that losing weight could be anything but a cause of celebration we can't put this in the film apparently i hear for something that is criticized for its attitude for that i think it's really healthy because it says it's an obsession but it's a comic obsession and you're right the great achievement of this is for this not to be a memoir or helen fielding's Mm. diary she's made it a character She's asked to do what every female journalist is asked to do, which is, can you take anything out of your life and sell it? Can you literally prostitute your existence, your children, the death of your parents, and turn that into copy and content? And Helen Fielding, as a good comedy writer, said, no, I'll make up a character. And because there's a character, she can have a distance from her, and she can make that obsession about her weight a comic feature. Helen Fielding isn't saying being obsessed with your weight is a good thing. She's saying my character has been told by society to obsess about her weight. And that's a good bit of comic writing. The book opens with two lists, like New Year's resolutions. I will not, and I will. And the first I will not is, I will not drink more than 14 alcohol units a week. And the second I will is, I will drink no more than 14 alcohol units a week. One, two, chapter one, alcohol units, 14 (laughs) on day one. And that is such a perfect joke. It says, here's the number she's aiming for. I'm going to restate the number she's aiming for. What does she do on day one? Beats her limit on day one. And it's a lovely joke. And she then explains it about how it's impossible on the first day of the new year to be the new person you want to be because you're still drinking and eating and smoking and doing all the things you were doing at Christmas, which is a lovely bit of social observation, but it's it's formatted with a beautiful one, two, three, and tagged to a number. It's pure comedy writing. It's really clever. And though that joke is embedded within longer pages, but you feel the rhythm of it. The astonishing skill in saying, I will tell these jokes confidently, and they will be based on things like numbers. There will be expectation, limits. It's a joke about someone under societal pressure. And that's the character she's writing. 
I love that because there's a secondary joke as well about how she immediately opens her first diary entry by saying, well, technically it was over the course of a party and they're separate days and that was between like, either side of midnight. So it's all right, really. And you think this is a diary and you feel the need to justify and explain yeah. this to nobody but you. And it's the gap between what we're expected to be and how we really are. I think that's what appeals to people. There is a lovely fudge in this, which I think is beautifully done, which is within seconds you go, oh, it's a diary. I accept that. Even though she fills it with dialogue and character that you wouldn't do. (gasps) It's a lovely fudge because it reads like a diary, even though no one writes a diary like this. But you as a reader accept the conceit. Because really early she flashes back to a mad conversation she had with her mother in the summer about Christmas presents. You would never do that in your diary, but you go with it. And you meet her mother, who is one of the greatest comic characters in literature, Pam. I was thinking as well about how I loved Bridget as a teenager because I had never really read a book about a woman worrying about comfort or a person worrying about confidence and feeling insecure and having to go out and be live and live in the world anyway and having a you know a busy joyful life but also if you say oh Bridget you know awful role model always so worried and anxious about herself (laughs) Pam is confidence personified she is Vivid and bold and never takes no for an answer. Bridget's friend, Tom, and Tom's got an awful on-off boyfriend called Pretentious Jerome. Uh, Obviously, it's a Christian name. (laughs) Pam forms a robust friendship with Tom and Pretentious Jerome, which Bridget is concerned about. (laughs) And she says that she's worried that it's all going to end with her mother naively but hubristically agreeing to sing Edith P.F. songs in a sequined gown in a club called Pump. (laughs) The language is just gorgeous. It's poetry. It's perfect. And every time I do any sort of public anything or, you know, on the rare occasions when I've had to go on telly, I can feel myself naively but hubristically agreeing. And I'm really channeling my (laughs) Pam Jones. You're talking about like the the mother and understanding the mother being a way of understanding Bridget and how beautifully drawn she is and that difference between the confidence of the mother and the underconfidence of Bridget. Reading it as a kid, did you find it useful to read how an adult talks about their parent? Yes, and it was comforting because I think Bridget does become a bit of a teenager when she's with her <laughs> mum. And I think we all do. Yeah. I think to a point we never stop that regression. In a way, I thought, oh, I, I will never master this relationship. And again, it's just like, you know, what we were saying about the symmetry of it, that Bridget more or less finishes where she starts with some significant differences but that perhaps that's the thing with families too when Mm. you are a teenager and everything sort of feels so dark and chaotic and you're like when when will this be fixed and it's almost buddhist where you're like it won't this is it this is how it's going to be you don't have to have some massive journey you might be okay as you are maybe the comfort of this book comes from it saying do you know what you were all right at the beginning all that change she wants to have, you're all right. Yeah, and that's especially radical. The one thing that will never change is that we will always be told to change. Yes. I suppose it did perhaps feel amazing then when a lot of the other content I was consuming seemed to be about transformation. And Because I remember at the time as well, when I was a teenager, I got really into Madonna and I loved Madonna then for her total radical image overalls and it seemed like such a cool and exciting thing to do you know to be a a shapeshifter but then Bridget Jones is a book about self-acceptance which I feel like we talk about a lot now and sort of pay lip service to but she really 
does mean it. Yes, you're right. It's not about transformation. And when you're talking about the atmosphere around this time, you talk about this this era, this celebrity culture that's starting to go really nuts. We're still saturated with the idea that there are these desirable people who we should emulate. Probably the biggest surge of that since maybe the 30s, star culture becomes massive. And the idea that, that Madonna is an example you can follow because she can reinvent herself. And you keep wanting to say... Yeah, because that's all she does. She wakes up every morning and all she has to think about is being Madonna. If you've got a job, you might have other things to do. I love the way that Bridget Jones is always too busy to do all the reinventions she's meant to be doing because she's trying to live. You might not be able to change. At the same time as all the culture is saying, if only you changed, you would be happy. And her journey is one of fluctuation and effective stasis. In a culture that's constantly saying, Aim somewhere. This is where you're going to be. You will be happy when you become Kate Moss, Gwyneth Paltrow, whoever you want to be, Courtney Cox, whoever's big at the time. You'll be happy when you're more like her. And for the message to be, well, you won't get there. Maybe you'll have to just stay here. She's like many of us. She's a mixture of happy some days and unhappy other days. But she's always optimistic. And when it all goes wrong, she goes out with her friends. She drinks too much Chardonnay. She does a bit of feminist ranting. And then she goes, oh, never blurry mind. And then the next morning, she's got a new plan, be it Buddhism or Feng Shui. Something that really only struck me on a, an adult rereading was that she eventually moves to Telly. And at Telly, that's annoying and exciting and... <laughs> unexpectedly fun and unexpectedly dull. But it begins with her doing this publishing job, which, you know, I think even at the time, I thought, oh, sort of working in books, it's very, she's really brilliantly satirical and silly about it. But her relationship with Daniel Cleaver begins on the office chat because she is so bored. Yeah, And that way that, I think we've all done those jobs, haven't we, where people become attractive because you're like, I have nothing to do. I'll just stare at the back of your head and think about what might be. Those offices are overwhelmingly female. The office romance with Daniel Cleaver is very much something she's doing to stop herself going mad with boredom. You really feel that she she doesn't mention what she's doing at work Mm. in her diary because it's not interesting. It's beneath her. There is a little more, I think, about publishing, if I remember rightly, in Cause Celeb, Helen Fielding's first novel, which really does so brilliantly that starting fresh-faced and wide-eyed and meeting exciting people and thinking, this is the job that's going to change my life, this is the one, and getting the ick quite quickly and that boredom really setting in. I picked up Cause Celeb because I found it on our, on our, on our bookshelves uh, when I was looking for, for Bridget. And I thought, I wonder how it starts and how it compares, how the lead character compares to Bridget. And what I was delighted by to find that she's exactly the same, very similar character. And it's written from the first person. So weirdly, it feels a bit like Bridget. And I was surprised how much I went, oh, God, this you could just take this and put it straight into Bridget Jones. Um, she says, I was what was known as a puffette, a publicist in a publishing company, Ginsberg and Fink. I wiggled around in short skirts, legs in sheer black tights, crossing and uncrossing in meetings, then kept going on and on about people not being interested in my mind. It's funny how at 25, you worry about not being taken seriously and take being a sex object for granted. Later, you take being taken seriously for granted and worry about not being a sex object. Thinking, she could do this straight away. It's brilliant. There's just something about it not being a diary and something about it not being Bridget that he goes, well, no one cared about that one. I love this one. But it's all the writing and the style and the way of identifying stuff and speaking about what it feels like to be in that position. All of that's already there. She is just a brilliant writer. It's not like she suddenly stumbled upon something. She could always do it. Oh, and those bits are so 
brilliantly done her waiting around and knowing and I don't think in the book she doesn't seem any less smart or any less cool but she sort of spends all day at work not really concentrating on the work and holding her breath and knowing that she may or may not see Daniel and then he'll pop in and say oh I'm so sorry I've got to go to Zurich Um, I might see you after the weekend and she's just like I'm fine because that was also the She also talks about all the the dating rules and the rules, I think, were going at the time. She's trying to follow those. And like, you know, you must never show a man that you're disappointed. You must never show a man that you need him or that you want him or that you're insecure, all that. You've got a giant hole in your flat left by Gary the Builder or that your flat stinks because your mum has left a stake in a bag and not told you about it. And that's the other thing as well, this sort of contrast between the glossy life she feels that she should be leading and actually thinking oh she's got a, a drafty stinky flat because of yeah. a combination of bad choices and bad luck that felt really real and really funny what's interesting about this is well it's about romance it's a romantic novel and romance means romantic ideas so her romantic ideas about romance turn out to be compromised by reality which is actual life as an adult is much more complicated disappointing smelly awful terrible she's sort of trapped by the disappointment of the everyday That's what's so positive about this is it says to you, you can survive. You know she's going to be okay. One of the reasons you know she's going to be okay is this is built over the plot of Pride and Prejudice. It says it on the back. What's the connection between this book and Pride and Prejudice? Um, I simply stole the plot of Pride and Prejudice. (laughs) That's it? I wanted it to be a novel with a beginning and a middle and an end. So I needed a good plot and that's why I chose Pride and Prejudice. I love the fact, as a professional comedy writer, when she first mentions Mark Darcy, she says, it's a bit on the nose, him being called Mark Darcy. Hangs a little lantern on the joke that winks to a literary, clever, romance-loving audience that we know where this is going to go. I'm writing for my audience. We've all been there. We all know what's going to happen. Don't worry. She's going to be okay. I remember thinking, oh, you don't have to be serious when you're a grown-up. You can be... (laughs) Silly, and you'll have fun with your friends. And she does say stuff in passing as well. Like she doesn't record it all in her diary, but she might mention that she'd gone to the cinema with someone last week. It's a bit like it's kind of that Ferris Bueller fantasy in that it's what you think you do with a little bit of money and a little bit of opportunity. Yeah. It is exactly how I would have lived when, if I was say thirteen and granted that, like earning an adult salary, an adult salary publishing in London. That's the one I think fantasy that's never been explained or revealed. It's like. <laughs> Yeah, if she was doing her job, she couldn't be living where she lived. She certainly yeah. couldn't be living on her own. She certainly couldn't have paid for all that Chardonnay. And we're working in this this industry and there was no money and you were living on canapes at launch parties and things. It was not a well-paid thing. So you're, you're right. The fantasy is that you'll be able to do this lovely, lovely job and live on your own. She doesn't have flatmates, which is the family most of us have when we first leave home. Is our urban family is a, a huge number of people in quite a small house. I mean, when I wrote Insatiable to plug my own book, <laughs> the one thing that I really wanted to get across that Bridget does not have is that just being broke and being constantly worried about being broke and sort of thinking, when will this end? Because yeah. I knew it was going to be hard, but I thought I would eventually just work hard and be okay. And I don't want to be a millionaire. I just want to, you know be able to live in a flat by myself and yeah. you know have lots of wine and the detail about the um you know being hungry and relying on launch parties and things I mean in a way I think that's good and that's the one thing that it's not going to come with Pride and Prejudice because Bridget wants to fall in love with a nice man it's not an economic necessity yeah. like it absolutely is for the Bennett girls and that's why that Mrs Bennett is 
a nightmare, but she is also doing uh, misguided best for her daughters she's because right. she's got the fear for them. What else are they going to do in this economy? This isn't a book that has a lot of interesting class and money, mm. which makes it very, very different from Jane Austen. It's not that bothered by the tiny class differences between maybe a successful boomer parent and a struggling girl in publishing in the 90s, which there would have been. She would have been worried about where she was living, whether she's got any money. Mm. It's not mentioned. It's fascinating that 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 sense of her mother being concerned for her is in there and her fussing her and bossing her about and saying, find a partner, mm. without it ever mentioning money. And it has that in common with a lot of the sort of the Richard Curtisy fantasies, mm. which this is part of. And obviously yeah. she was uh, as an old partner of Richard Curtis, a good friend of Richard Curtis. She wrote with Richard Curtis on the not books, which I loved as a kid. I remember seeing her name in the back of those. And those guys are very good at not mentioning money so that you can get lost in the fantasy, mm. whereas most of us spend most of our time worried about money. It's interesting that Bridget Jones is relentlessly interested in numbers. And I remember the number I was fascinated by this age was my bank account, mm. which she never mentions. She measures her success or failure by calories and cigarettes and glasses of Chardonnay, mm. never by what my girlfriend had when I first came to London, which was the back of her checkbook, which she wrote down every single bus ticket in. Because you needed to record that because you were going to run out of money. There is a faint nod to it, which I should acknowledge for the sake of fairness. Um, I think the resolutions at the beginning, I will not spend more than earn. Yeah. And then on the to do, the I love this line so much, her resolution to save up money in form of savings. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. They're certainly not, it's not made in Chelsea. They're not the idle rich. There's no implication that she is living off an inheritance or she's a foppish Bertie Wooster kind of character. There is a feeling that she is ostensibly a real person who really has to afford the rent for her flat. But by removing that, I think that's what gives it its comfort. Mm, yeah. It gives it a sense of going, oh, well, we'll, we'll take that worry off the table, which is why it's fun watching Notting Hill and Four Weddings and Love, actually. It, by removing what is a core worry for lots of people, 
it puts you in a place where you go, I just want to escape here because I worry about it all the time. Mm. So let's go to somewhere where someone's not worried about it and we won't ask any questions. It does. It makes everything much more fun, doesn't it? My friend Cheska Major has written a brilliant book called Maybe Next Time and it's The Conceit is Groundhog Day and it's yeah. a really good rom-com. And like Ellen Fielding, Cheska's got that amazing sharpness and lightness of touch. And... What I loved about it is when she, the main character, figures out she's going to like live the same day all over again. Yeah. She immediately goes out and it's like, I'm going to spend, I don't know what it is, £4,000 on a pair of leather trousers and I'm going to go to Claridge's and have dinner. And the friend that she, that goes with her, it's like, what are you doing? And it isn't giddy and enjoying the display yeah, yeah. of sense as well. She's like, I'm actually quite upset and this isn't what I want. But it felt so human and so maybe it's bad. Maybe it, it speaks very ill of me to say, yeah, if I was going to live the same day of my life over and over again, I'd just buy estate jewellery until yeah, I'm yeah. tired of it. You're talking here about a book that you read when you were a teenager that gave you a fantasy, a very comforting fantasy about what it would be like to be an adult doing the sort of job you might want to do, books and stuff, and having a bit of romance and living in a place on your own and having independence. And it's lovely that it doesn't include money worries because that's the worst thing about being a grown-up. So she's fast-forwarded to a sort of comfortable 40-something, I earn a decent living kind of world. She's not going through the actual worry that most of us go through in our 20s and 30s. We're trying to make our own way and we're worried about cash. Her superpower is she can just move seamlessly through this world in which she is having her adventures. It's very comforting mm. to, to know she's going to be um, okay. She doesn't have kids either. And there is that vague sense of like, oh, someday, one day, when I meet yeah. a nice boyfriend, that's what I want. But that's another anxiety that I know that lots of people I'm friends with who are otherwise perhaps at that Bridget point. where So she is in her early 30s. So yeah. in theoretically, hopefully at a point where you could be mild money anxiety. And she does talk about worrying about sort of access bills and things and random things coming in the post, but it's not. It's more of an irritation than a yeah. constant driving anxiety. I suppose it is about when those adult things are going to happen. But as a teenager, I think because she talks about that Magda does have kids and yeah. especially I think now because there's so much I think brilliant Bridget style I'm going to use that horrible word I hate content to describe it but <laughs> people are creating lots of great writing about the relentless and very very funny parts of having children and that voice of an adult woman having adventures and having a nice time and yeah Bridget doesn't have to worry about anyone really and she really cares about her friends and she really cares about her family but she can be self-absorbed enough to be the author of her fortune and misfortune and I kind of I miss that voice now yeah. I think it's really great that parents have those voices and they're creating those voices and I'm delighted by it and I enjoy a lot of that stuff but also sometimes I think you don't really hear someone saying actually this is it being fun and urgent and pacey yeah. and in the moment She doesn't want a completely new life. She wants what she gets in the book. One of the reasons I think the book works perfectly is a piece of craft. She has one goal, which is one nice boyfriend, and she ends with one nice boyfriend. But she's not feeling a biological clock ticking. I mean, that's coming from other people. And it's hilarious how her her parents' friends are <laughs> openly saying to her, TikTok, come yeah. on, you career women. But she doesn't talk about that. It's not worrying her. So I imagine as a thing to read, especially at that age where maybe that's not on your mind mm. or maybe that's a frightening thing to consider or it would complicate things. The simplicity of it, the clarity of it is saying she just wants this one thing. It 
captures a moment in life which is beautifully simple and selfish. Maybe the last time that a woman is allowed to be this selfish. And that's a really comforting thing to go back and visit. Another diary we haven't talked about that I think it has got an enormous amount in common with, and I'm sure Helen Fielding will have read this and have been inspired by it and is paying homage to it, um, Diary of a Nobody. Yes. And Pooch's goals are really so simple, yeah. aren't they? He just is really focused in pursuit of that relatively small thing he wants. I'm always in of an evening. Our old friend going may drop in without ceremony. So may Cummings, who lives opposite. My dear wife, Caroline, and I are pleased to see them if they like to drop in on us. But Carrie and I can manage to pass our evenings together without friends. There's always something to be done. A tin tack here, a Venetian blind to put straight, a fan to nail up or part of a carpet to nail down, all of which I can do with my pipe in my mouth. What's great about any middle-class comedy is they've got somewhere to fall, and somewhere to rise to. It's a lovely place to set comedy because the stakes are real and really easy to understand, but it's not life and death. So they're, they're comfortable, but they could fall and they could rise. And all she wants in this is a nice, simple thing, which is exactly the same as Dara Nobody. Declare that you would like to rise in status. She will rise in status if she has a nice boyfriend. Pooter will rise in status if he is, is sort of well-respected in the community. What they're after is really clear and you don't feel terrified for them. I just wrote it quite unselfconsciously initially to make people laugh. That was all it was this there This is for. a funny thing about Bridget. Take it for what it is, a light little story. Exactly. So this came out in 95, right around the time of Friends, yeah. which that is another lovely fantasy for millennial elders like me, mm. where we didn't dream of marriage and kids and being grown-ups like our parents. We all wanted to go to Manhattan and live in big purple lofts. <laughs> I mean, this is exactly the same era where, they, where what we might call those urban family dating shows are. These are people who are single and they're looking for a new partner. But what's amazing about this is this is a dating book where there's not much dating. It's really old fashioned. It's like she's got an intended, someone she's betrothed to, and then there's another man. It does have a real simplicity to it. She doesn't do a series of dates. She's not out on the single scene. She's got a very simple romantic life. Very easy to follow. Very easy to root for. I suppose perhaps it's very hard to set any creative piece, be it a novel, be it for film or TV, in that dating world where someone is regularly meeting different strangers. Because I think that often people try to make that funny by being quite cruel about the strangers yeah. and saying, oh, my typical luck, how am I ending up with all these freaks? And that just doesn't land. And I think for it to work in a rom-com, you have to be invested in your hero or heroine, but also kind of invested in the other players and curious about how things are going to go for them. And I do, I think it's in this as well that Jude's boyfriend, Vile Richard, when you actually meet Vile Richard, he's quite pleasant and he's yeah. quite sweet. And that thing that I think the way that women talk to each other about their male partners, also being quite heteronormative there as well, the way women talk to each other about their partners and I don't know anecdotally that men do it in that way. And women will have this like really sharp, clear idea of, you know, this Adonis or this monster, yeah. like, oh, their poor friend or what they're going to do, what's going to happen. This isn't a book where Bridget has a vast array of boyfriends and they're all dealt with cruelly. I think that's another thing that makes it comfortable is that you don't feel that she's going to go out there and we're going to have a load of tiny thumbnail caricatures of people who'll be savaged. Mm -hmm. 
the kindness of it is quite appealing. There's this gorgeous bit that I loved where it's Valentine's Day and there's a card and she assumes it's for her upstairs neighbour, Vanessa, and yes. she keeps going and checking and seeing. <laughs> the card's still there. still there. The card's, card's still, still there. there. card's still there. And <laughs> Vanessa eventually kind of knocks and says, oh, I thought this was for you. And they're both kind of, she says that she sort of pushes it towards her and she pushes it back and she giggles. And then it's just the line, I love girls. And that's how yeah. I feel. It's such a tender sisterly moment. And you know, there's a whole other novel with Vanessa. Yeah. You know, she's got a Daniel Cleaver and she's waiting. <laughs> and I think Vanessa opens it and said, it means, no, this means nothing to me. And it's um, um to my darling frigid little cow or it's something. It's an in-joke that yes. only she would get. It's addressed to like the dark eye. The dusky beauty. Dusky beauty, that's it. So basically they both think that's the other person. Yes. It's a lovely thing of going, that self-deprecation, that thing of going, putting yourself down to someone else, you're an unattainable beauty to yourself, you're this dumpy mess. That it's such a generous and clever bit of writing. I mean, let's just applaud the fact Helen Fielding is a first-class comedy writer. The chops, the stuff she leaves out, mm. the stuff she trusts her audience to get, the the flattering of the reader in this is off the chart. Mm. Is there a sense in which, even though Helen Fielding has deliberately fictionalised herself and said, this is Bridget, mm. not Helen, even though they're very similar, but weirdly she does act as an example of how to be a witty, successful urban woman. So in a way, you're not just following Bridget, you're following Helen. Helen has written mm. this book. And that says to you as someone who's miles away, go, well, you could write funny books. There's a funny thing in this game. It's not just about Bridget. It's about saying this book, which is really funny and lovely, a woman wrote that. Would you like her life? Would you like to be in her world where you're able to write these books? And I think that people always forget that with, with books. They always look at the hero and they forget one of the heroes is the writer of the book. And a sophisticated grown-up in this is Helen Fielding. Well, I've just remembered. I wanted to go to Cambridge because I wanted to be in Cambridge Footlights. And I loved Emma Thompson. And that, to me, in a weird way, at home, dreaming in Dorset. My mum and dad loved comedy and they watched a lot of comedy. And my mum would actually, she said she sent off a few sketches to Fry and Laurie. And they <laughs> sent her a very nice letter and said, oh, we don't use contributions yeah, that people yeah. send in but you know these are good and thank you they're very you know kind and polite about it and I think did a few things like that and I think all well, my uncles were at it as well it's sort of everyone thought this is kind of the the best thing to be is yeah. funny but yeah even though I obviously didn't go and obviously even if I had gone into Cambridge I think I would have just like cried on my own in a room for three years and not gone anywhere <laughs> near the lights but that feeling I think of Oh, this is how you, you get on. And I was going to go to university and join things and escape and hope that I could meet funny, fun, yeah. witty people and be part of something. I went to an all-girls school and everyone was preoccupied with weight and eating disorders. Yeah. And that was a problem for me long before I knew about Bridget. But then, yeah, this idea and the most comforting thing of all that it was all going to be okay, that yeah, I could be I wrote as much as I could and I'd written, you know, the school magazine-y things and I knew I could write things that made people laugh and I'd write little like reviews and plays and, and put things on. And yeah, I think that was it. I had a real like, you know, that's the life for me. You can have author crushes, the idea that mm. someone's done something good that you realise, you go, I want to be like that. At the time when there were fewer funny women mm. around, if it was a million years ago, there are four million men on all the writing credits for everything. And then there's Helen Fielding lost in the middle of it next to Douglas Adams and, and Jimmy Melville and everybody. She is an iconically good female comic voice, really confident, really brilliant. And this book says, you could be this funny. The whole thing just says, you can make people laugh. What a lovely job.
got a power in it of saying, maybe this book will tell you how to be an adult. Maybe this book will show you what adulthood is like. And books like that are really important, I think, especially when you're a kid and you're about to go into teens and you go, I want to read a book that feels very adult. And obviously it isn't really adult because it's all soft and lovely and funny. But it does seem to hint that it's an instruction manual of some sort. I remember thinking, when you're looking at people who are impressive grown-ups, that somehow they got a book that you didn't get, the instruction manual that told you how to, I don't know, fix a car, get a mortgage, uh, be happy, be assertive. I don't know what it was, but you got a feeling that you missed that lesson. You were sick that day at school. There weren't The instructions aren't available. There's something brilliant about this book in that it comes with all these lists and numbers that says, oh, are these the secrets? Something I'm only realising perhaps now is my first book, um, I called it How to Be a Grown-Up and it is non-fiction <laughs> and it's a mix of memoir and tips. And in terms of practical stuff, yeah, I don't tell anyone how to fix a car. I wish I'd done that. But it it's to reassure. It's the, I suppose, the non-fiction version of the feeling I got from Bridget Jones, I'd say, and perhaps with a bit more of the don't worry if you feel like a freak because you're over your overdraft and your only asset is your Boots Advantage card because <laughs> that is where I have been. Um, and I think all the stuff about kind of dating and, and drinking and feeling really messy when you're in it. And when you read Bridget Jones, you know there's a happy ending. And when you're living your chaotic 20-something life. And again, you're not, I don't think... Anyone is a hot mess on purpose. And I think the way I felt in my 20s was, well, there are limited identities available to me and that one fits better than anything. But I don't really want this. I don't crave this. I'm just messy because it's the easiest and safest thing to be. And to write a book, I suppose, that spoke to that and just wanting to write this book to say, it's okay, you're not alone. And I never really realised thinking about being someone who has written books. And I don't know if you feel this way of, those years when you were younger and dreaming of an author being an amazing thing to be. And then, you know, thinking, well, I'm going to write what I hope is a comforting, funny, reassuring book called How to Be a Grown-Up for everyone who is muddling through their 20s or muddling through whenever and wanting to hear from someone else who is getting it wrong. And it never occurred to me that people might be reading it and thinking, oh, and the person who did all this disastrous stuff got a book out of it. I mean, that's yeah. something. I think that's that's a, a, a one of the things that's lovely about any form of comedy writing, especially observational comedy writing or comedy writing, and almost all comedy writing is observational. Mm-hmm. It's about existence and how we live and it's from lived experience. And when you write this stuff, all you're saying is, hey, I went through this too and I'm still here to a point that people are listening to me, to the point that I've managed to turn it into art. I've managed to make it funny that I'm standing back enough from it. I'm not just crying. I'm now laughing about it. You only laugh when you're safe. So whatever I went through, I now feel safe enough to laugh at. And yeah, like you, I only realised after we'd written loads of Ladybird books uh, for grown-ups that I went, oh, the phrase grown-ups is in there and they're all called How It Works and they're basically attempts to explain things I don't understand about being a grown-up as if we needed a manual, as if someone had forgotten to give me the manual. And I think there's a lot in common with the comedy style of Bridget Jones. It's kind of a little manual about, don't worry, I've been here too and I'm still alive. Of course. And just like Bridget Jones, the Ladybird books are a real affirming thing, a lovely, funny, brilliant thing that I'm a fan of, but also proof positive that we all want the manual. It feels really honest, even though it's a work of fiction, with it being a diary. 
one of the most comforting things is the insecurity and the, oh, I've got that wrong. And what did people think when they were looking at me then? But also this idea that there are different versions of being grown up, which is to be hung over and in your pyjamas on a Saturday, really like you want to be now if you didn't have parents coming in and opening (laughs) windows and curtains. They're selfish so-and-sos. Bridget's honesty, the fact that she fails and she's crunchy and messy and slubby and doesn't quite come up to her own standards, is what it feels like to be a teenager faced with a world of grown-ups. That you feel you have that you haven't been given the manual, that you haven't been mm. given the guidebook, and you'd come up to snuff if you could only just get the numbers to line up, the diet numbers and the cigarette mm. numbers. Is there a formula I'm, I'm missing? Did someone not give me the manual? That's completely what it feels like when you're 13. Her triumph at the end, and I think it's interesting that... Although it sort of happens through Mark Darcy, she has this huge professional triumph where people are always just saying names in meetings. And in a way, her TV career is a very pure distillation of her life where people are just throwing information at her. And she's like, yeah, I know what's going on. Her awful uh, boss, Richard Finch, keeps saying, you do know what that is, don't you, Bridget Droopy Draws? And all these sort of very derogatory things. And Bridget immediately is like, oh my God, of course I know what that is. And she gets the exclusive interview, kind of thanks to Mark Darcy and a bit of luck. But I love that. Firstly, you see Bridget is the ultimate unreliable narrator because the way she feels and the truth she thinks she's telling you about herself isn't the truth at all. She is together. She does know what's going on. And also these magic that it's not, it doesn't end with this big wedding for her. It ends with her doing some serious journalism and being taken very seriously and having this exclusive, excellent redemption after the fireman's poll. Very tellingly, her arse on the poll is a big feature of the film and the serious human rights interview does not appear in the film. (laughs) Well, when I first wrote it, I was asked to write a column of myself and I said, no, no, I'll make someone up because I'm quite a private person. So I was quite freaked out when it became so well known. And I always used to protectively quip, I don't drink or smoke and I am a virgin. (laughs) But of course you have to write about things you know to be true. I think the comfort of this book seems to come from saying, don't worry, there's someone else who hasn't got it together. And then the comfort of the book comes from the fact that it's a bestseller, which means that other people bought it and thought, oh, I haven't got it together either. If it had sold two copies, it would be a cult thing for people who've got anxiety disorders or body dysmorphia disorders or something. The fact that it was a massive hit said that everyone feels this way. Otherwise, it wouldn't have sold. And maybe that's where the comfort comes from, the fact that it's a success. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And it's something I can't fully get my head around. And I remember when the film came out and all my school friends went wild for it. And they came to the book because of the film. And I felt quite proprietorial and upset. I'm like, she was my friend first. (laughs) It's always either things that have happened to me or a friend or might have happened or nearly happened or a little seed of something happened that you exaggerate to make it funny or dramatic and work it into a story. It's a bit like the thing with the Valentine's card. Mm. Everyone thinks it's for them. Yes. And you go, oh, but I thought you were the beautiful person. I thought you were the nervous person. Oh, we all are the nervous person. It has a a communality to it. And I remember when this came out, I was working in bookselling. I was in a, in a bookshop and everyone was waiting for what at the time was called the female fever pitch. Because fever pitch had been a massive hit for Nick Hornby, the, the memoir about football. Mm. And it had said something about how men are. And men had gone, this hasn't been said before. We really welcome this. And it was very, very popular. And they went, there needs to be a fever pitch for girls. It wasn't they were looking for something that, about, that was about a female obsession. It was about something that said, 
to women as a whole that they all felt the same, mm. that there was a universality, there was a commonality, a sisterhood, in the way that the fever pitch had said there's some sort of broken, wounded brotherhood going on. And it's very comforting to be told you're not alone, I suppose. What I think unites both books and what I think the most important thing I learned from it as a an aspiring writer and what I still want to put into my writing, and I don't know if you feel the same way, voice is everything. It doesn't really matter what the characters in a book are doing, as long as you love and trust that central voice and the the magic of making something that is that feels unique and yet is universal, where yeah. you love it because you feel like it's for you and only if it was somehow written to sound like it was addressing the millions of people who are reading it, we wouldn't love it. We wouldn't connect with it. And I think that's what Fever Pitch does as well. And what this does is that directness, the first person address. And it's honest because it's talking about pain and shame and embarrassment and neuroses in a very friendly and accessible way. When I sort of started, I was writing for Bliss magazine, Teen Mag, and that was a place where I think everything I'd learned from Bridget Jones was how I was talking to readers. It's like, you feel like you're alone and I promise you're not. You're really scared and, you know, you think you've got no confidence and you think everyone's better than you, but I promise it's all going to be okay. And that felt like a really important thing to have at the back of everything. But also, look, life is fun and look at these pop stars, and look at these cool <laughs> things people do. And then I was also writing a bit for uh, James Brown's old website, Sabotage Times. And for the first time, I could write in my own voice. And I thought, oh, I could pretend to be quite cool. And I wrote a couple of column kind of first person bits and then quickly discovered like, no, I, I'm not cool. I can't sound cool. <laughs> I can't even lie convincingly to myself. I can't lie to <laughs> any of these people. Um, it's just not funny to well, write like someone who's trying to be something quite polished. If you're faced with that world of, of colour supplements and Madonna and saying, well, if you haven't seized the opportunity to be your best person and, and have all these amazing products and to reinvent yourself, then somehow you're a failure. This is a book that says you're not alone in feeling that's an awful lot of pressure. And actually, maybe the person, given the choice to be whoever you want to be, you might not be cool. The great thing about Bridget Jones is she's not very cool. And she's always frightened by the fact she's not cool. She's not the person she wants to be. And at the end, someone doesn't mind. It's the opposite of cool. And when you sort of say, what's the opposite of cool? The opposite of cool is warm. And her world is warm. And maybe that's what people are getting out of this. At a time when everything was about cool, this is about warm. An early lesson I took from this book is cool is kind of a lie. No one is cool. Anyone who is, is pretending. And Rebecca, there's a great line about her and how fake and shallow she is. And she says, the brilliant thing about Rebecca is there is always a split second where she gives herself away by looking really pissed off. Are cool people just pissed off? It's fragile. You can't keep that up. The essence of this book is saying that Underneath whatever she's trying to show the world is this person who she shows her diary and shows therefore you and says that underneath all the best people who look like they've got it together, there's actually someone who's a bit of a mess, but not a chaotic, hilarious, hot mess Mm. who's interesting because they're so crazily unstable. An ordinary, boring, normal mess, which is what most of us feel like all the time. Absolutely. And even the most normal of us will have our extraordinary moments. <laughs> That's what's so positive about this is it says to you, 
you can survive, that she survives and she does okay. And you know, she, as you said, you know she's going to be okay. One of the reasons you know she's going to be okay is this is built over the plot of Pride and Prejudice. It says it on the back. That was huge for me when I was 13. And when people knew that I read Jane Austen and they'd shout things like, nerd, and <laughs> often meaner, crueler, ruder things. <laughs> and this was her, a grown-up, giving me a little nudge on the elbow and saying, yeah, we're, we're mates. We like the same thing. Yeah. We're in this. And I love that. I mean, on... Um, on the Your Book podcast, and I'm sure, I mean, this is, you know, what you do here as well on Comfort yeah. Blanket, when our fandom and our reading and our passion unites us completely. And it's a lovely, like, breaking of the yeah. fourth wall and reaching out. And I do, I mean, nothing brings me more joy than talking to an author I admire enormously and then discover that we both admire the same other book yes. enormously. It's such a leveller. It's just gorgeous. It's being honest about it and it's saying that we have these things in common. Uh, it's, it's, it's offering friendship and... Maybe that's a lovely thing about this book is it says Bridget will be your friend and Helen will be your friend and she has the same taste as you mm-hmm. and let's have a glass of wine and and maybe it won't be so scary because I promise everything's going to be okay. There's a real feeling in this book that everything's going to be okay and that may be why it's such a lovely comfort. I mean, that might be why this is my my big comfort because I think Bridget, in a way, might be my oldest friend outside my family <laughs> who I'm in regular touch with. What a lovely thought. Thank you so much for bringing Bridget Jones Diary. Delighted to. Thank you. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe.